from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this week's CER podcast. Today we're going to give you an edited version of an event we had on Tuesday the 22nd of June with Franz Timmermans, the European Commission Vice President in charge of the Green Deal. Uh, then we're going to turn to our Climate and Energy Fellow, Elisabetta Cornago, for a, for a short discussion of the key questions that the event raised. But let me introduce the Timmermans event first. The Commission is putting out various proposals to strengthen incentives to decarbonise in July. Uh, that's all under the, the banner of the FIT455 package. And the package includes a proposal for uh, an awkwardly titled, and I always get this wrong, Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, uh, reform of the EU's emissions trading scheme, which has been long-standing and has been uh, in effect since 2005, and uh, an update to the effort sharing regulation as long alongside various other initiatives too. Uh, the CBAM and the ETS reform are the biggest issues really. Um, let's take the CBAM first. Uh, it will impose costs on EU importers of products from countries that don't have a carbon price. That's to prevent so-called carbon leakage, whereby climate action within the EU leads to more imports from countries who don't act themselves. The ETS reform, on the other hand, is essentially an extension of the ETS into buildings and road transport. Got to remember that these are consumer facing sectors and up till now the ETS system principally covered polluting businesses such as energy generators and heavy industry and domestic aviation and so forth. And I think these two reforms exemplify the risks the Commission and the EU face. On the one hand, there's a possibility of a backlash from other countries over barriers to imports as a result of the CBAM. And on the other, there's domestic opposition from consumers who face higher costs under the ETS reform. The thing is, when we first uh, embarked on this road based on the Paris Agreement, we thought we could stay on course by reducing our emissions by 2030 with 40% as compared to 1990. Now, science since has taught us that that's not enough. So we need to up the ante. And we came to the conclusion that if we reduce the emissions by 2030, with at least 55%, we could still stay on track uh, for the uh, maximum 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature rise. Um, but it, it then turns out that, uh, you know, if you, if you go from minus 40 to minus 55, that's not just an incremental uh, change. That's a fundamental change in terms of the policy areas you need to look at. That's why we're now coming out in July with uh, the 12 proposals in all these policy areas that you've mentioned. The Commission's view is the changing science means tougher action in more sectors of the economy. Obviously, this raises problems about fairness and raises the risk of a political backlash because household investment is going to have to go up significantly to meet targets. In our analysis, we uh, saw that there are three areas particularly difficult to tackle. Uh, housing, the built environment in more general, uh, transport, where the emissions have consistently gone up instead of down over the last years, 
and agriculture, where, as you know, we have uh, quite complicated negotiations also on the common agriculture policy reform and uh, the farm to fork and uh, biodiversity initiatives we've taken uh, to further help uh, along the farming in, in a more uh, sustainable way. So when we look at transport, the only way you can you can decarbonize transport is by, of course, enhancing public transport, uh, emission-free public transport, creating the right infrastructure uh, to make sure um, uh, you can switch to elect electric vehicles for cars and vans as soon as possible, uh, that um, you tighten the emission rules for cars and vans, uh, but that you also provide for the infrastructure that is necessary for charging infrastructure and the underlying production of renewable uh, electricity uh, for that charging in infrastructure, uh, that you also look at the way we produce renewable energy, make it more uh, easy uh, to produce renewable energy in the housing sector uh, and build environment. We need to double uh, the efforts to save energy. Uh, we now save about 1% a year. That needs to go to 2% a year. You need to elaborate on the ETS system. You need to make it uh, uh, broader. You need to introduce uh, shipping into uh, the ETS system. You could envisage creating an ETS system also for uh, housing and, and transport. And all of that will be presented to member states and to the parliament. And then, of course, there will be a huge discussion on all the measures separately and all, all, also jointly. Uh, and it is quite clear which measures uh, will be criticized by whom. But then my question will always be to co-legislators, all right then, but how uh, do you have better plans to get us to the minus 55? If you don't like uh, ETS, uh, how are you going to get there? Through extra taxation or through regulation? What are the consequences of that? Uh, what is the best way to organize things in a, in a fair way uh, to make sure the most vulnerable are not affected too much? to make sure that you have the middle classes on board. Things like that will all be part of the debate uh, once we've presented our package in July. The audience pressed Mr Timmermans on the question of how to deal with the problem that extending the ETS into consumer-facing sectors raised big questions of fairness. Some people could afford the higher costs this entailed, but others couldn't. And when we have to reach uh, minus 55 in nine years' time, some tough choices will have to be made. And then you have actually three options. Either you, uh, you expand or, or you device uh, an ETS system uh, for transport and housing. Uh, and again, let me repeat, transport is a huge problem because emissions have been consistently going up, not that. Um, so either you, you uh, try and device an ETS system for housing and transport, or you uh, use taxation as a method, or you use regulation as a method. Uh, but we have to do something to bring emissions down. Um, uh, and then you sort of um, analyze which system would have the most uh, fair redistributional effects, which system would allow you to correct uh, if, if need be, uh, which system uh, actually leads to a change in behavior. Uh, to give you an example, you know, uh, uh, we, we tax uh, fuel uh, for cars. But does taxing fuel for cars change the behavior of the oil companies? No, because they don't feel any, any responsibility for that taxation. That's something that they say, we produce it for a certain price, and then the, the state or the, the government puts on a tax, and that's not our problem. But if you can create a system whereby it is in the interest of those providing the energy 
to reduce their CO2 footprint because it, it's for them, it's money in the bank. That might be more interesting than taxation or regulation. So these are the things we need to analyze very carefully. And of course, there will be many questions about that. But I always come back to the same point. Minus 55% is something we've agreed. That's now set in law. Um, if you don't want it uh, through an ETS system, so what are you going to do then? But how would the Commission ensure that poorer people were compensated for higher costs they faced under the ETS? After all, climate action tends to be regressive, with poorer people facing higher costs as a share of their income in reducing their carbon footprint. What you could do, for instance, uh, when you talk about transport and housing, is you could um, use part of the proceeds to put it in a social fund and to use the social fund to help people who um, are at risk of energy poverty or to help people whose mobility would be unjustly affected uh, by uh, an ETS system. Uh, that would give you the means uh, to show that this transition is just. So we believe that such a fund could be, uh, could be helpful. My colleague Elisabetta Cornago pointed out that at the moment, some sectors such as manufacturing and aviation continue to get some of their ETS allowances for free rather than having to buy them at auction. But would the Commission propose getting rid of these free allowances, especially as they interacted with the CBAM? After all, the EU couldn't demand importers buy allowances if domestic producers just simply got them for free. Well, you know, the, the um, free allowances were never meant to be eternal and, and there has to be a, a gradual a reduction of free allowances for the ETS system to fully fully function. But it has to be gradual. Uh, you have to give industry the time uh, to uh, adapt. Uh, I actually believe I'm more optimistic or more positive than, than you seem to be about the functioning of the ETS system. I think industry, of course, is placed before a challenge, but they've gotten used to the ETS system. They know how it works. Um, uh, of course, now that the price has gone up so so quickly, some are worried, but it's still functioning very well. And 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 this this the fact that they've gotten used to it uh, and that it's becoming more and more something that um, how should I say this? It it creates a situation where industry understands that you can link uh, putting a price on carbon with the market mechanism, uh, and and that's what they like uh, and. I believe consistently the uh, price per tonne will keep rising and that will help the transition. Turning to the international scene, I asked Mr Timmermans whether under Biden, the EU had a more willing partner in the US than it had under Trump. How much of an opportunity did he consider Biden's presidency to be? And thinking about the domestic politics in the US, for example, the Senate was at 50-50 um, and Joe Manchin, the, the senator from West Virginia, classic coal country had the casting vote. Also, there was the radicalization of the Republican Party. Also, looking forward to COP26, would other countries believe that the US would keep its promises, given the domestic political scene, and as important, perhaps use its considerable heft to push other countries to act? Well, I think the fact that uh, the Biden administration has recommitted to the Paris Agreement and shown great ambition is, is, is of huge help in the international scene, uh, because there are a couple of international players who, who brought about the Paris Agreement and, and still feel a level of responsibility for it. The US under Biden is one, but also China. Uh, and uh, the US committing to this and being very much engaged in all of this also stimulates China not, not to you know, um, 
uh, stay absent from from the debates. And and China's always also said that it would uh, go for net zero by 2060. Now we still have to see what this means concretely in terms of five year plan and other initiatives they might take. But it, it, it it's a whole different place than a year ago internationally, where people were criticizing the EU for being alone out there. We're no longer alone out there. If you we've we've entered into a green alliance with Japan, and Japan has also committed to um, climate neutrality by 2050. Uh, Canada, South Africa is moving quickly, uh, South Korea, a host of countries is, is moving in the same direction. So, so that gives us an opportunity. Now, the US is a bit of a complicated case, as you said, uh, politically, it could go the other way. But even under Trump, with all his withdrawal from Paris, his, all his rhetoric, etc., the energy transition in the US kept going. Uh, or everything he said about coal um, uh, didn't lead to less closures of coal plants, more even uh, than before, simply for economic reasons. There is no future in coal, whatever the rhetoric says. So even during the uh, uh, Trump years, at state level, uh, in corporate America, um, at city level, things were moving in the same direction. Um, but of course, on the international scene, the position of the federal government is of huge importance. Um, but Biden doesn't start from scratch because things had already moved along in, in several areas in the US uh, at uh, sub-federal level and in corporate America. The Commission wants to introduce a CBAM, however, which might entail higher barriers for some US imports to the EU, unless the US's carbon regime was considered to be equivalent to the EU's. Wouldn't that cause some trouble? On the United States, I, I don't think, I, I don't have any indication that the United States would, at this stage, consider introducing its own version of a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, not at this stage, in any case. Having said that, um, I truly believe that the uh, decarbonization efforts uh, across the Atlantic will, they might use different instruments, but the putting a price on carbon is what everybody's going to do. And once you, you put a price on carbon, whether you do it with an ETS system or whether you do it with regulation or taxation, you avoid the problem of um, carbon leakage. Uh, and, and I honestly believe that the risk of a serious um, disagreement between the, the European Union and the United States on carbon leakage is, is very limited indeed. He was at pains to stress that the CBAM would be WTO compliant limited to sectors where carbon leakage was likely to be a big deal. It's on our shoulders. It's, it's, it's our responsibility at the Commission to analyse very carefully per sector where there is a manifest risk of uh, carbon leakage. Um, and we've been, we've been doing that, that work for, for um, over a year and a half. And uh, it is indeed extremely complicated but at the end of the day you can look very specifically at a few sectors uh, and identify where concretely the risk of carbon leakage is it's not a frankly a, a global problem it, it then boils down to a, a quite precise uh, problem uh, so I'm, I'm not that worried about that risk of course carbon border adjustment uh, could mean many things to many people uh, and I don't exclude that some would see this as the first step to, to a, towards a more uh, corporatist Europe. Uh, but that's certainly not the attention, uh, intention of the Commission. Um, 
very clearly, we want this to be WTO conformed. That that's what that that's what we're working for. I I really want this system to be within the WTO rules. Looking ahead to COP26, Mr. Timmermans was optimistic that other countries understood the risks and were willing to move together to tackle climate change. The rendezvous was in Glasgow in November and see what we could do together with our partners uh, to hopefully get the world to embrace the idea that we need to keep global warming well below two degrees. And, and, and so that's the first rendezvous to prove our point that we can, we can lead together with others uh, to do exactly what, what you're asking for. Secondly, you know, uh, as I said before, it was quite lonely when we started with the European Green Deal, but um, somehow also the need to recover after the pandemic has brought home the idea in many countries that we better rebuild in a, in a more sustainable way than where we were before. Uh, even in, in, in less developed parts of the world and even in more reluctant countries as far as climate policy is concerned. So I think that has created a more positive dynamic. And at the end of the day, you know, people will not follow the European Union because they think we forced them into doing that. They will follow it when they think this is in their own interest. And where do their interests lie? I think in, in improving uh, uh, their environment. Many countries act, uh, also big countries, uh, India and, and, and China, because they have a serious climate problem internally uh, and environmental problem. Um, they also want to be part of the future of the global markets. And I think uh, rule setting and developing of, of, of the global economy, uh, we lead in Europe uh, and some other areas others might lead, but in many areas we do lead. Uh, and they want to be on this market, even though uh, uh, we're not more than 9% of global emissions, we are a, a, an important uh, reference point in terms of market rules and market access. And, and that helps us uh, also to take others along. Um, and, and by and large, I believe there's increasing uh, public awareness across the globe of the already horrendous effects of the climate change that has happened. Uh, the climate crisis is upon us. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening. And it's creating, a, I think, a, a strong political momentum for action. The only worry I have is that if we don't come up with uh, steps uh, soon and show that it can be done and also show that it can be done in a fair way, then, uh, you know, we might be uh, in a situation of climate desperation. People say, OK, this is going wrong uh, in a very serious way, but hmm, uh, nothing we can do about this anymore. That's that's actually a bigger fear I have than uh, than uh, climate denial. I think I, I think you must be living in a cave somewhere if you're still in climate denial. But the climate desperation is is in the increase and we have to make sure there's no need for that by showing that we can actually still uh, save the day. Elisabetta Cornergo, our, our climate fellow, is joining us um, for some more in-depth analysis of some of the things that Mr. Timmerman said. Uh, Elisabetta, he was, he was fairly circumspect on some of the details, um, and so we thought it would be good for you to dig in a bit more on some of the Fit for 55 package and, and, and tell us a bit more about the detail. I mean, it's understandable, right? They've got, they're going to be coming out with a package in a few weeks' time, and so he's, um, he's not really at liberty to talk about it in depth. But some things have been leaked. There have been some discussions about what's going to happen. Uh, so it'd be great to hear from you on some of those issues. Uh, so the first question, I guess, is that Timmermans pretty strongly defended the EU emissions trading scheme from, I think, your question, actually. 
and uh, and he essentially argued that eventually all countries are going to have to introduce some kind of carbon pricing um, and that means that the EU's plan to introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism that's based around the um, emissions trading scheme is going to be fine. Um, what do we know about the EU's plans for a CBAM and, and particularly how, how do you think those plans are going to uh, come across to some of the partner countries like the US, um, China, Russia? Yeah, thank you, John. Those are, you know, very good questions and, and, and very sensitive ones at this stage. As you said, um, there has been quite a substantial leak uh, recently about the, the cardboard border adjustment mechanism. And so we know a little bit of what it might look like, but of course we have to take that with a pinch of salt. So um, in a nutshell, CBAM is, is going to be connected to the EU emissions trading scheme. And this, this type of fee that would apply to, to importers would actually zoom in on a subset of the sectors which are interested by the ETS. So the Commission has selected uh, a set of, of sectors which are likely particularly exposed to foreign competition and as such more at danger of uh, suffering from carbon leakage. And these are electricity, iron and steel, uh, cement, aluminium and some fertilizers. So of course, this, this is going to be probably just stage zero, let's say, of, of CBAM. And we know that this, the Commission has in mind a, a three-year sort of transition period to phase in this complex mechanism into the, the broader, uh, I guess, artillery of, of policy uh, packages that are in place in, in climate action, see how that works out and possibly then expand it to more uh, heavy industry sectors which are uh, contained under the UETS. So what would that look like? On one hand, you know, an importer uh, that comes from a country uh, that, that, or that imports from a country that implements a similar carbon price to the one that we see under the ETS is going to enjoy a reduction uh, in, in, in the price to pay uh, with, respect to, with respect to the CBAM uh, allowances. But on the other hand, if, um, if the import comes from a country that has no comparable um, carbon price at all, then of course uh, that's that's the precise reason to, to have a CBAM in place to create a level playing field between domestic industry and external competitors and uh, price imports in order to bridge that gap between the UETS carbon price and the non-existing non or exceedingly low carbon price abroad. That is ultimately the whole rationale uh, behind CBAM. Now, it's a bit more complex than that, uh, in the sense that, of course, the, the price of, of CBAM allowances need to reflect the carbon content of imports. And so there will be a lot of administrative burden around this piece of regulation because importers need to certify the amount of basically carbon embedded in the goods uh, that they are importing. And that has to be done by independent experts. So that's that's a lot of complexity that's, that's partly required, right, to understand how carbon intensive goods coming into the EU are. Uh, and that provides a strong incentive, I guess, for trade partners of the EU to try and link uh, their climate policies to the EUETS somehow. Certainly a strong incentive for the UK, for example, who has a fairly similar um, ETS uh, that, that just recently started. Okay, great. Um, and, and I guess uh, another point of discussion in the webinar was the interaction between the, the free allowances uh, that manufacturing and aviation gets uh, under the emissions training scheme and, and how that's going to interact with the CBAM. Because, of course, if you're the US and you're going to get hit by the CBAM for your exports to the EU, but then 
domestic producers in some areas are getting free allowances, um, then how is how is this going to work? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really, I think, putting your finger on one of the big open questions and, and the trickiest bits, I think, of the design of CBAM as well as of the ETS, right? Because free allowances uh, were already uh, somehow contentious before the arrival of this new kid on the block, CBAM. Uh, because they basically amount to a transfer towards heavy industry in order to shield it from, again, the competition of uh, foreign producers of, of the same goods who are not exposed to stringent climate uh, regulation. So the rationale is that, you know, let's give them polluting rights for free for the time being so that this, this prevents carbon leakage from happening. But of course, if you implement the CBAM, CBAM's aim, as Timmermans very clearly, uh, you know, uh, tried to try to explain, is exactly to prevent carbon leakage. And so there is no rationale for having the two things in place at the same time. And in fact, it might be detrimental for the EU to seek WTO approval of the CBAM itself. So we know, and again, this is something that Commissioner, Commissioner Timmermans said himself, there will be a sunset, there will be a phase out of free allowances for for heavy industry, then the big question is how and when? Because again, some of the leaked materials points to 2030 or even 2035 as a, as a sunset date for, for, for the free allocation of allowances. And so that seems to me a bit difficult to, to align with the ambition of the 2030 objective that, that we have in mind. That's just you know nine years away. And if, if we keep on pushing the can down the road and if heavy industry is not exposed to, to the strength of a carbon price signal, until 10, 10 years uh, away from now, then that, you know, how is that going to work in terms of ensuring that the decarbonization of the sectors really gets started? That's, uh, that's, that's a complicated policy question that, that we still have to see details for in, in upcoming drafts. Yeah, we'll see what they come up with on July the 14th. Um, and making industrial, industrial polluters pay, um, well, well, pay for all of their allowances, it's not the only change on the table. Um, when it comes to the forthcoming ETS reform, is it? Uh, Timmermans talked about expanding the ETS to consumer-oriented sectors. I believe Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, Commission president, has said that they're intending to uh, for it to be expanded into transport and into buildings. Um, how how would this work, crucially, and um, perhaps even more crucially? This is moving into consumer facing sectors of the economy. This is not just heavy industry, big business. Um, so it has the potential to be much more politically controversial and, and obviously poorer people are going to find it harder to pay for any increased cost of the carbon that they're responsible for polluting. So how, how do you address it, the distributional impacts of expanding the ETS in this way? Yeah, as you say, so there's uh, this is going to be complicated both, I guess, from, from a technical policy design point of view, but above all from the political point of view and social point of view. How do you justify and how do you make this work uh, with uh, the, you know, the, the, the consumers who are going to have to pay ultimately a higher price for, for their energy consumption, uh, for their fuel consumption, both for driving and for heating their homes. So, you know, in terms of design, um, we, we don't know much again because we have just had some sentences here and there by Commission officials. It seems to be that the Commission is thinking about setting up a separate ETS scheme to cover these two additional sectors. So to somehow, you know, 
I guess, expose consumers to a different and, and certainly lower to begin with carbon price with respect to the one that's today, uh, you know, coming out of the existing ETS, which uh, addresses electricity and heavy industry and, and internal aviation. So that's one thing we know. Uh, I guess it, you know, it kind of makes sense. It would also make sense to connect, right, these, these two uh, ETSs, so, so, so to make sure that there is some kind of parallel evolution uh, in, in, in these prices, but you know, we will have to, 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 to wait and see for, for the directive to see the, the technicalities of that. Another question is, who would pay, obviously, the, the, the carbon price associated with, with allowances? Um, would it be you know, fuel refineries, retailers? Um, that, that makes sense, but then what is the aim of this type of expansion of the ETS? You know, what, whose behavior do we want to change with this type of carbon price? Is it, you know, the technological refinement of, of fuels uh, which takes place in refineries or, or is it consumer behavior when it comes to driving as opposed to taking private transport, public transport, sorry, or is it, you know, changing the way we heat our homes and ultimately also boosting investment in more efficient technologies. So renovations of homes so that comfort remains the same while, while uh, energy uh, consumption at home lowers. So if, if that's the ultimate objective, uh, consumer behavior change and, and efficiency investment, then I think we, we, we need to do a bit more and, and we need to be very careful about how we use the revenues from the scheme. And this, I guess, tries to answer what, what you were bringing up in terms of what are the distributional consequences of this type of scheme. Um, obviously, uh, lower income consumers would be uh, hit harder by, by this type of intervention because they spend a higher share of their income on uh, fuel consumption, on, on, on driving, on heating their home. Um, and so that needs to be addressed. And, and Commissioner Timmermans did mention that uh, he, he has in mind the sort of social fund, which would use, I guess, part of the revenues from these additional ETS to transfer I guess some kind of social fund checks to, to households which are particularly exposed to energy poverty or which are, uh, you know, don't have alternatives to, to, to driving when it comes to uh, their, their mobility needs. So it seems like they have in mind some kind of a very specific type of transfers to, to vulnerable households, which makes a lot of sense. But I think it would also make sense to think about using part of these revenues to support, again, investment in, let's say, a shift from uh, internal combustion engine cars, you know, traditional cars to electric vehicles, for example, or even better, encourage people to shift to public transport passes or cycling, and also, you know, boost the renovation wave and encourage people to intervene on, on the leaky uh, apartments so, so that their energy bill ultimately uh, gets lowered. So I think there needs to be a discussion around, again, how do we use the re those revenues? Income transfers are okay, I think, in, in the short term to obviously address the, the, the higher costs, but we need to have, you know, longer term solutions to, to address the, the technological change that needs to happen there to, to help consumers also take part in the energy transition. All right. Well, thanks, Elisabetta. That was really helpful. Um, uh, and thank and, and thank you to, to um, Timmermans and his team for, uh, for speaking to us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it too and see you in a couple of weeks for the next edition of the CER podcast. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.